How much did you pay for the cup of coffee you were drinking? This is the bougiest, most expensive coffee that I am willing to buy. This one was $5.17. Recently, producer Alvin Mellis went to a coffee shop in Brooklyn to find out what's the most people would be willing to pay for a cup of coffee. A lot of people put their limit at around $5. It is New York. But last summer, a high-end coffee chain called Blue Bottle sold a cup that makes five bucks seem like a steal. Can you imagine paying like a $16 cup of coffee? A six, a $6? 16. Holy shit, a $16 cup of coffee? That's like a, that's a cheeseburger at a really fancy restaurant and fries and maybe an appetizer. I don't think I could do 16. I don't think I could do it. What do you think a $16 cup of coffee would taste like? It better taste like caviar, gold. It better look like gold. Can you talk to me about the price? I mean, so so sixteen dollars. It's really really a cup. expensive. Yeah. Yes. James Freeman is the founder of Blue Bottle. He started his company in the Bay Area, and with the help of a lot of VC money, he's been opening up new stores around the country. So when you guys priced it to be sixteen dollars a cup, what were you thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> um, that's what a lot of people on the internet wanted to know. From my perspective, it, it's like I don't care how much it is, as long as people think it was worth it. And people did. The $16 a cup coffee sold out in less than two months. It didn't look like gold or taste like caviar, but James says it's one of the best coffees he's ever tasted. It was really just just a transcendent coffee. It just had a, like a beautiful brightness, a plump without being uh, portly. It's... it's uh, like you, you've been given a gift. From Gimlet Media, I'm Lisa Chow. This is Startup. James Freeman doesn't think about coffee the way most people do. He talks about it kind of like some people talk about wine. This is the world of specialty coffee. Super high-end coffee where stuff like where the coffee is grown, what elevation it's grown at, how the coffee cherries are picked, dried, and stored, all of those details matter. And this is the fastest growing part of the U.S. coffee market. In the last 15 years, it's tripled in size to more than $25 billion. Making a super high-end specialty coffee requires precision engineering. And that $16 cup was virtually perfect, which is surprising because it came from a place where precision is really hard to achieve, an active war zone in the Middle East. The company that made this Gucci of coffees is an early-stage startup called Port of Mocha. How did its founder pull it off? And can he do it again? The first time I met Mokhtar Alkanchali, he was wearing a tailored suit and wingtip shoes. He traveled to New York for a meeting at the United Nations. Before that, he was in Egypt and San Francisco, and he was about to head to London, all to talk about his hot new coffee company. But only four years ago, Mokhtar didn't know much about coffee. Back in 2013, he was just a 20-something, struggling to finish community college. I felt really stuck, and I wasn't reaching my full potential. And I think, in my heart, I really want to do something big with my life. Mokhtar was taking classes, but also working odd jobs to support his parents and siblings. He'd grown up in San Francisco, the oldest of seven kids. His father was a bus driver, his mother a stay-at-home mom, and the nine of them lived in a one-bedroom apartment in the Tenderloin. It was crowded, 
and Mokhtar would sometimes get sent to spend time in Yemen with his grandparents, a year in middle school, another in high school. Like many people in Yemen, his grandparents grew coffee, and Mokhtar remembers helping his grandmother pick coffee cherries as a kid. But he didn't drink it much. The only coffee he'd had was bad diner coffee in the U.S., which he thought tasted like burnt popcorn. But one day, when he was in college, feeling stuck, he walked into a cafe and bought a cup of specialty coffee from Ethiopia. And I tasted it, and I said, this is amazing. It had the taste like blueberries, very tea-like. It was $5, which I thought was expensive for coffee at the time. But once I tasted it, I was like, this is absolutely worth it. And that cup, it was a revelation. Suddenly, Mokhtar saw his family roots in coffee in a new way. He started asking coffee people about Yemeni coffee, and he heard the same thing from all of them. The best cup of coffee I had was from Yemen, like 10 years ago, five years ago. They talked about it with an almost religious fervor, like it was a holy grail of coffee. But they also said it had all kinds of problems. It was hard to get, the quality was inconsistent, and it had weird defects. The only way to produce reliably great coffee from Yemen was to be there, overseeing production. And the issue for them was they just couldn't go to Yemen. It was dangerous, the language barrier, there was no infrastructure for them to go to. And me being from Yemen and being from here, I thought I could fill that gap and be that bridge. And if he did, Mokhtar thought maybe this could be the way to do something big with his life. He could help thousands of farmers back home, farmers like his grandparents, make a better living for themselves. So Mokhtar quit school and moved to Yemen in 2013 to figure out how to produce the perfect cup of coffee. He got advice from experienced coffee buyers, farmers, and other experts. And for two years, he traveled all over Yemen. He went to remote villages, high up in the mountains, places where he'd sometimes have to travel on foot. And he studied every part of the process, the harvesting, drying, storing, even the transporting. And right away, he started seeing the problems he'd heard about. One time, I, I had a coffee come in, and I, I tasted it. And it tastes like gasoline. It has a, had like a particular smell, like diesel, actually. And I went outside. I kind of see the car you guys brought. It was this big flatbed truck they had it in. And as soon as it turned on, a big puff of diesel smoke came from the back of it right into the flatbed where the coffee was stored. Mokhtar started working with farmers to tweak their process, told them not to let truck exhaust near the coffee, banned smoking, since it could make the beans taste like cigarettes, and suggested they store the coffee in a cool, dry place on wooden pallets, not on the ground. But the biggest thing Mokhtar did, he asked them to pick only ripe red cherries. Coffee beans come from coffee cherries, and the riper these cherries are when picked from the trees, the better the coffee is. But handpicking only the ripest cherries is incredibly time-consuming, so Mokhtar paid farmers a lot more to do this. He paid them so much more that farmers who were planting other crops, like kat, a strong stimulant that's popular in Yemen, started replanting their fields with coffee for Mokhtar. By 2015, Mokhtar had what he believed was Yemen's very best coffee, and he was ready to put it to the test back home in the United States. There was one obvious place to start, Seattle, Washington. There was a big coffee conference, and it's like the Coffee Olympics. You know, over 100 countries attend. And so my goal was I was going to have a marketing event at that conference. So I had told these farmers, you guys worry on, on quality and producing great coffees. I'll figure out how to sell this coffee. Mokhtar was all ready to go. And then, two days before he was scheduled to leave, 
In Yemen's capital, devastating airstrikes from Saudi Arabia. A new offensive to drive out Iranian-backed rebels who seized control of the capital and key military sites. Yemen had been sliding into civil war for months between the government and Houthi rebels. And now Saudi Arabia and a coalition of neighboring countries had jumped in to back the government. Mokhtar was sleeping when the airstrike started. I woke up and I heard these explosions going around and I, I went outside and I saw like, it looked like laser beams. It was uh, these anti-aircraft machine guns. The blast was so strong that some of the, the metal on the door was bent inwards. I was terrified, um, but I just stayed in a corner and and uh, waited it out. Nearly 20 people died that night. Mokhtar needed to get out, not only for his own safety, but also because he had to get to that coffee conference in Seattle. But the airports had been bombed or closed, and when Mokhtar asked the State Department for help, they said the U.S. wasn't evacuating its citizens. It was a feeling of being abandoned by your own government and not knowing what to do because other countries were taking out people. China and Russia were taking out hundreds of people a week. India and Pakistan, you know, I, I knew it was really bad one day when I saw a headline that said, Somalia is now evacuating its citizens out of Yemen. Mokhtar heard that some countries were taking their people out through a port called Aden. So he threw his coffee samples in a car two suitcases with about 30 pounds of coffee in each, and drove there, hoping to catch one of the ships. But the situation in Aden was intense. Militia groups were fighting in the streets. And not long after Mokhtar got there, he was captured and held by a militia group. It was traumatic, and Mokhtar doesn't like to talk about it. After several days, his friends negotiated his release, and Mokhtar made his way to another port, Port of Mocha where he'd been told a boat was waiting to take him and his coffee across the Red Sea to the Horn of Africa. But when he got there, the only boat ready to leave was tiny. Like scary tiny. It was like a little dinghy, small, I don't know, 18, 16 feet, with a single 40-horsepower Yamaha, like motor. Which means that if it goes in the water and it dies for whatever reason, you're like, you can't move anymore. You're stuck in this ocean. I had never thought about, like, death. But and I saw the water, I saw the boat. I was like, okay, I need to text my family just in case. I, I wanted to know how I felt. Do you remember what you said specifically? You know, that's just that I love them and that forgive me for anything I've done in the past and things like that. And then, yeah, then I got on the boat. The trip took hours. But Mokhtar made it, and he got on a plane to head back home to the U.S. This week we learned of a harrowing story about getting stuck in the middle of a civil war and a truly great escape. In my Uber, on the way to the conference center in Seattle, I hear myself on, on NPR. The Uber driver, he was like, man, this guy's really amazing. He's helping these farmers, doing this work. But he's, he's crazy, though, for him to do that, you know. And, and I'm like, yeah, he's nuts. Mokhtar's coffee was a hit at the conference, and it attracted the attention of Blue Bottle, that fancy coffee chain. They asked him to bring some over so they could try it. It was the first time a roaster had tried our coffee, and I was already re- really nervous about that. And so when I showed up, 
I noticed there were a lot of coffees on the table, and I was a little confused. And then I realized they had other coffees. Blue Bottle had brought in some other coffees they were also considering buying. These were amazing coffees, too. And so I, in my head, I'm like, oh, okay, great. There's no way I'm going to do well. You know, mine's like the underdog. No, one, no one's heard of it. Eventually, the buyers from Blue Bottle, some of the most discerning buyers in the business, started tasting the different coffees, tasting them blind, meaning they didn't know which coffee belonged to which seller. People have their notes out, and they're saying, this coffee has, you know, it started really amazing, then it fell apart at the end. This coffee was too whiny or tarty. This coffee had a really, had a, had a wood taste to it, a very baggy, old kind of crop. Then they were like, this coffee was f- absolutely amazing. Da, 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 da. They said it was, a, it was a fruit bomb of flavors, a bouquet of flowers. It had a sweet, lingering taste to it. Papaya, mango steam, you know, and I was just like, oh my goodness. And at the end of all that, then they revealed which coffee was which. It was my coffee. Across the industry, coffee is rated from zero to 100 based on things like aroma, acidity, and flavor. Specialty coffee rates above 80. Mokhtar's coffees rate in the 90s. The buyer at Blue Bottle asked Mokhtar how much of this coffee he had. He said about a half a ton. Blue Bottle wanted to buy all of it. I walked out and I just like, I got really emotional and then I just stopped and just like took, tried to take it in and like, oh wow, like I actually have something that's good. Like all this work, all this thing that happened, like me risking my life and the farmers and I can, I can actually, you know, fulfill my commitment to them. And it was like, to know that you have something that's great and then to hear people tell you that and then tell you they want to buy it. Like, it's like they, they want me, they really want me. Just a couple of weeks earlier, Mokhtar had been on a tiny boat in the Red Sea, fearing he might die. And now he was about to sell a half a ton of coffee to one of the fanciest coffee chains in the U.S., he sold that first batch for more than $50 a pound, which became Blue Bottle's $16 cup. I didn't know my coffee was going to be $16 per cup. I was really shocked. I was, I was actually shocked. I mean, what did you think about the price that you were paying, Mukhtar? I thought it was so expensive. <laughs> James Friedman, Blue Bottle's founder, says he was willing to pay that price because Mukhtar's coffee was just that good. And on top of that, it was rare and had an amazing story behind it. All of those things were about to lead to a huge opportunity for Mokhtar. One day, he was at a cafe with a friend talking about his company. A girl joined the conversation, and she's like, hey, um, you're pretty cool. You should, you should come give a talk at my job. And I'm like, where do you work at? And she's like, um, I work at this, this venture capital firm. And I thought she said founding fathers. I don't know anything about the VC world. So I told Ibrahim, he's like, I've never heard of them. Ahmad Ibrahim was brought on to be Port of Mocha's COO and CFO after the Blue Bottle deal. And he remembers Mokhtar telling him about this encounter at the cafe. So he's like, hey, I met this girl. She works at a VC called Founding Fathers. And I was like, oh, I haven't heard of them, but that is a really great name for a VC. I don't know. What, I don't know. And then there's an email intro. And I was like, oh, Founders Fund. Are you kidding me? He was like, bro. This is huge. Founders Fund is Peter Thiel's fund, which has invested in massive tech companies like Facebook, Spotify, and Airbnb. I invested in Port of Mocha without even tasting the coffee. That's Cyan Bannister, a partner at Founders Fund. She knew the specialty coffee market was blowing up, 
And she thinks more and more people will start treating specialty coffee like expensive wine, something to savor. You know, when you go to a fine restaurant, it should be on the menu. When you have a, a special event, it should be something that you serve. You know, when you have like a wedding dinner and you get the crappy cup of coffee at the end, why does it have to be that way? <laughs> you get the good champagne and the crappy coffee. Cyan gave Mokhtar and Ibrahim a quarter million dollars, and they raised another million from other investors. You know, is this a multi-billion dollar opportunity? I don't know. Uh, but if it ends up being a $250 million to $500 million opportunity, I think that's incredible. I think he has, he has a chance. So now, Mokhtar has investment from big-time VCs, and it was sending him back to Yemen, a country in the middle of a civil war, to build a half-a-billion-dollar company. After the break, Mokhtar finds out just how hard it is to do that. Welcome back to Startup. So before the break, Mokhtar had created one of the highest quality specialty coffees on the market and landed more than a million dollars in VC funding. And then he headed back to Yemen, where things are still incredibly unstable. And there are all kinds of challenges for a small business like Mokhtar's. Getting money in and out of the country is difficult because the central bank keeps moving. Plus, flights are sporadic and visas are really hard to get. Because travel is so hard, Mokhtar works mostly out of Oakland, California, which means he wakes up every day at 3 a.m. to talk to his managers. And because Mokhtar can't always inspect the coffee in person, Ibrahim says they both end up texting with the managers throughout the day. Like, for example, they'll send a picture of dried coffee cherries, and they're very black, which is great. Um, but then we'll be like, well... Does it glisten in the sun? Like, does it does it have a sheen or it doesn't? Like, you can't tell that from a picture, for example. And so they'll they'll take a video and then they'll shine a light over it and you'll see how the light reflects off of the... Like, things like that we had to improvise, but obviously these things would just be like a non-issue, non... It wouldn't even be a thing if you were just there. Late last year, the guys had their second shipment ready to go. Four tons, which was a lot bigger than their first shipment. And they gathered together to test it basically to see if it was as good as their first batch, the now-famous $16-a-cup batch that brought those big VCs on board. Ibrahim says he was feeling the pressure. We didn't want to be a one-hit wonder. It was very important that we got this next shipment out, that it increased in quantity and quality. To test the new batch, they set out 12 cups of coffee, each one grown in a different region and by different farmers. Some cups represented a small amount of the four-ton shipment, others a large amount. And the guys tasted the coffees blind to assess their quality. We got there and all the cups were set out. And before we even tasted it, I smelled it. I smelled something weird. And when Mokhtar tasted the cup on the corner of the table... It was harsh, had a bad lingering aftertaste, um, flavorless, you know, not, not sweet. And, like, there was clearly something wrong with this coffee. Like, this coffee needs cream and sugar. Ibrahim could also taste that something was off in that corner cup and a second one as well. You start thinking about which coffees they could be, but you still don't know. Um, but like that's the f- I think that's what's racing through my head. I wonder which coffees those are. And how, like in the back back of your mind, you're hoping they're not the big ones. 
And we do the reveal, and we both cried that day. Those two cups, they were the big ones. My stomach turned. 85% of our volume for the shipment, like three and a half, over three tons, was from that one region, those two cups. The bulk of their shipment fell short of the high standard they were going for. Mokhtar and Ibrahim scrapped most of it. They sold it off in the local market in Yemen at a loss of a quarter million dollars. I'm like, can I still do this project? It basically destroyed this house of cars I've built. And so and for me, it was like going back to a drawing bed and going through every single step of the process. Where did we mess up at? What point did the copy get ruined? And why that happened? Mokhtar needed to figure it out, and fast. He had a vision for his business. Pay farmers a premium to grow super-specialty coffee, command high prices from buyers, and generate big returns for investors. If the coffee quality wasn't there, the whole thing would fall apart. I began asking all these questions, and like, I checked everything. I asked where it was from, how it was bagged, how it was stored, who, every little part of it. Nothing seemed weird or out of whack. But then he noticed something strange about the moisture levels on those two coffees compared to all the others he produced. Every single bag of coffee from those two regions was really low. And so I knew that that was the reason. Mokhtar knew that a coffee's moisture level was important, but it was only in this moment that he realized just how important it is. If the moisture tips too much in one direction, fungus can grow. Too much in the other, and a coffee can lose its flavor. There are multiple opportunities for the coffee to lose moisture. Was it during drying? Was it during storage? And so the the takeaway was like, we need to control all of that. So Mokhtar and Ibrahim rebuilt their process. They stopped having farmers dry the coffee cherries themselves and started drying them in their own facilities. They started using special bags to retain the coffee's moisture. And they doubled the number of quality control tastings they do. So they catch problems earlier. About a month ago, I met Mokhtar and Ibrahim in a warehouse in Oakland. We stood around a high wooden table where cups and wide tasting spoons were laid out. So this is the last tasting we do before coffees are shipped out. They're really in the bags, ready to go. It's been about six months since Mokhtar and his team tasted that second coffee shipment and realized something had gone terribly wrong. Now they're getting ready to test their third shipment. I'm nervous because they've gone through the whole process. They've been, and we've been filtering out all these negative coffees, and these are the, like the, the cream of the crop. He wants Port of Mocha to prove again that it can produce one of the world's best coffees. The company has upped production since the last shipment. These samples are from 10 tons of coffee, ready to be shipped from Yemen, more than double what they produced last time. Cool. Mokhtar starts to grind the coffee. He, Ibrahim, and another taster will sample 11 coffees, each representing a different portion of the batch, just like last time. Mokhtar and Ibrahim pour the hot water. They let the coffee brew for several minutes, and then they start slurping up the coffee with spoons. The more your mother would disapprove, the better. Um, you have to separate aggressively so like, the coffee can be in all parts of your tongue, and you can taste everything from it from flavor to acidity levels, mouthfeel. They move around the table quickly, slurping, jotting down notes, and keeping straight faces so they don't influence one another. They taste each coffee several times to see how it changes as it cools. 
I keep looking for some reaction, some sign of whether the coffee is good, great, terrible. I don't see any. Finally, Mokhtar asked the other testers what they think, starting with their least favorite. Lowest for you? Uh, tie between eight and nine. Yeah. Eight was mine. Harsh, harshness at it at the end. At some point, I tasted like a, like a cigarette. Okay, what about highs for you guys? Number one was my number one. Absolutely, number one. Even when I smelled it, as it cooled, mango, papaya, sweet, sweet lingering aftertaste. It's time for the reveal. Do they have a lot of that coffee they all think is the best? Do you know which one was number one? Yeah, it's like our biggest coffee. The best coffee of the tasting makes up the biggest portion of this shipment. It's a success. There are no high fives, no big celebration, but the guys look happy. I take a slurp of my own of this number one coffee. I'm having a hard time tasting the fruit flavors Mokhtar's talking about. I guess I taste some fruit in it. I'm just trying to think, is it mango? Do you taste mango? I turn to the other tester, a guy named Nassim Elkara. I don't taste mango, but it's definitely fruity. So the next question is, is it tropical? Is it stone fruit? This conversation all sounds so serious. And it is serious. The guys have a lot of money on the line. But Mokhtar and the others can still laugh at all the crazy ways people describe these high-end coffees. The first time I went to these, like, tastings, it was pretty intense. Like, someone said pink starburst. Someone said baby carrots. One guy, I still remember him till today, he said, it, this coffee is too passive-aggressive for me. <laughs> that was the best one. Ibrahim chimes in. Part of me is like, did someone really say that? Like, that's... And then Mokhtar did a presentation <laughs> one time, and this barista walks up to him, and he goes, I can't believe you remember my flavor descriptor. <laughs> <laughs> now, you guys, obviously, like, you're all certified coffee tasters, but... Do you think that like, the average person would be able to taste that, that difference? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think so. Like, we all have the same amount of taste buds. We're just able to, to identify them more. When people hear about, our, you know, our coffee and, and like, what the heck, it's $16 for a cup of coffee, and then they have it. I'll give you an example. One guy came in to the Rockefeller Center in, in New York, and I was there. And he goes, $6 for a cup of coffee? That's, that's expensive. I want to try it out. And then Barista's like, oh, sir, I'm sorry, it's, uh, it's $16. He goes, that's ridiculous, that's outrageous. Why would someone, he was in Brooklyn, $16 for a cup of coffee, that's, out- that's ridiculous. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then he kind of felt you know, embarrassed because now he's, everyone's looking at him. So he's like, okay, I'll, 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 I know what's going on in the country and what, what they're going through right now in Yemen, but, so I'll buy it, just support them. <laughs> so he buys it and I find out he comes back, he makes an effort to actually go back after, after work and he, he apologized to the barista. He's like, listen, this was the best cup of coffee I ever had. <laughs> because of Ramadan, the tasting started late, after Mokhtar and the others finished fasting. So now it's close to midnight. Mokhtar is clearly relieved the tasting went well. I can go home and sleep, you know, and, and I feel like a huge weight. You can say a 10-ton weight <laughs> has been lifted off of my shoulders. Yeah, I feel like much more confidence. I've done this thing, you know, I scaled the production and the quality, both were really amazing. So you can say I'm emotional, but in a different way than the, la- the last shipment. Mokhtar's third shipment arrives in the U.S. next month. He sent samples to buyers, and so far, he says he's getting good feedback. Next year, the plan is to increase production from 10 tons 
to 40 tons, then 150 tons the year after that. But to get there and to reach the half-billion-dollar valuation that Port of Mocha's investors talk about, a lot more of us will have to get excited about the idea of spending $16 on a cup of coffee. Startup is hosted by me, Lisa Chow. The show is produced by Bruce Walls, Luke Malone, Simone Palanen, Emmanuel Berry, and Amy Standen. Our senior producer is Molly Messick. We are edited by Caitlin Kenny and Pat Walters. Production assistance and fact-checking by Alvin Melleth. Special thanks to Heba Fisher and Sharina Ong. The idea for this story came from an episode of Kerning Cultures, a Middle East podcast telling stories from the region. Their episodes can be found at kerningcultures.com. That's Kerning with a K. Mark Phillips wrote and performed our theme song. Build Buildings wrote and performed our special ad music. For full music credits, visit our website. Andrew Dunn and David Herman mixed the episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Startup. Also, this is our last episode for the season. In the meantime, there's a new podcast from Gimlet that we think you'll like. It's called Mogul, and it tells the story of hip-hop through one man's life, Chris Lighty an executive who worked with stars like Missy Elliott, 50 Cent, and Mariah Carey. When the show starts, Chris is a young hustler, carrying crates for the legendary DJ Red Alert. I sense something about Chris with his character, you know, about how he come across with a business sense. And when him and I talk, I listen to his lingo. And when I listen to his lingo, it's like, this guy got something dear, more than what you expect. To find out how Chris Lighty made it to the top and what went wrong once he got there, search for Mogul on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. That's it for season five of Startup. We'll see you soon. Startup.